Welcome to Now I See, eye-opening stories from the formerly faithful. I'm your host, Amber White, and here, me and my guests share our experiences in loving and leaving rigid faith systems. Together, we shine a light on the dark corners of these institutions and share the joys of rebuilding life on our own terms. I promise you'll leave inspired, even if you are a little teary-eyed. Hi, and welcome back to Now I See. I'm your host, Amber White, and today's episode is one that has me all up in my feelings. (laughs) I'm talking with clinical supervisor, therapist, and now author, Seth Showalter. His new book just hit the shelves this month. It's called Finally Free, A Surrender to Authenticity, And I have been hooked on it since I first started reading the advanced copy Seth shared with me. I don't want to tell his story for him, but I do want to touch on a major theme that has been sitting heavily with me over the past few years, and even more since Seth and I recorded. Radical self-acceptance. It is unfortunately very common for folks who leave high-control religious groups and families to struggle with self-acceptance. The messaging we receive is that we need to die to our wants, needs, thoughts, and feelings until they look nothing like us and only reflect Christ. Putting aside the fact that the reflection of Christ these groups are referring to looks a lot like their own ideals and rarely questions them, This is a dangerous form of brainwashing that separates us from our own minds, intuitions, and ability to mature and develop emotionally at appropriate life stages. I remember hearing many times in church that dead men don't react. The idea being that if you were truly dead to self, you wouldn't ever feel or respond in a way the church deemed sinful. I'm here to tell you that what this actually leads to is being dead inside. It is normal and healthy to experience anger, frustration, disappointment, and sadness. These are all part of the human experience, and it is definitely okay to be upset with somebody who hurts you. I wish I could go back and redo the years I spent letting people walk all over me because I believed that's what made me a good daughter, a good friend, or a good partner who was doing their best to be loving and kind. It's just not true. And if anything, that belief kept me from figuring out who I am, what I want, and how to be honest with others about both. It is really hard to live a lie. It's even harder when you don't quite know what the truth is. The journey to radical self-acceptance takes time and it's ongoing. And that might sound hard, but I can assure you it's not as hard as feeling like your own worst enemy. I'm on this journey now, so I'm no expert, but what I have learned is that it starts with listening to yourself and accepting what you hear. I've been doing this a lot for the past few years, and it's led to some pretty incredible life changes. (laughs) I live in a different city, I have a different job, I'm divorced, and I have a podcast that pissed off my entire family and put us on no contact terms. But I've never been happier or more at peace with myself. I have true, deep joy in my everyday life 
that I just know is coming from being okay with who I am, what I think, and what I want. As you'll hear in this episode, Seth is finding the same thing. It is killing me not to give away his story because it is so powerful and triumphant. I will warn you that this episode deals with sexuality, queer identity, and gay conversion therapy, so it may be triggering to some. But that being said, this story ends well, and love wins. You can find the links to Seth's book, website, and social media platforms in the show notes. If you are particularly touched by this episode, I hope you'll reach out with how it moved you. You can go to this podcast website and use the contact form or email me directly at nowicpodcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you all so much, and I know Seth would appreciate it too. Okay, I won't keep you from Seth any longer. Let's get into the episode. Hi, Seth. I am so excited to have you on the show today. I had such a wonderful time, as much as can be had reading a book about trauma, right? (laughs) But like reading your book and experiencing it. So I'm just super excited to have you here for this conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. For the sake of our listeners, can you set the scene a little bit and tell me how you grew up, what religion you were affiliated with, and what your attachment to that was. Yeah. So I was born um, and raised in a Southern Baptist Christian family, and church was everything to my to my family and, and essentially uh, to my life. And not only was it important to my immediate family, it was also important to my extended family. So much so that I attended church three times a week, uh, would often uh, go just to escape um, the, the trials of, of things that were happening in my everyday life. So church became a safe haven to me. It was a source of support, comfort, and essentially feeling better. Uh, and it was everything. Like, I believed that I was a Christian, God loved me, and that that's what I needed. Christianity was was it. Yeah, I really enjoyed that portion of your book where you're talking about um, how church was a refuge for you. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind, I'd like to actually read that snippet. Yeah, go for it. Okay. You said, due to never having fit in at my school, my time at church became a haven, even at an early age. I was frequently at church, two to three times a week. For example, my Aunt Kelly, who is very instrumental in various children's ministries in our church, was a positive influence in my life. She encouraged me by involving me in a play she directed and would even cast me in lead roles. This was a stark contrast to the rejection I experienced at school. I would also sing solos at church and can remember singing No Turning Back on stage with my dad in front of the congregation. There's actually a video of that. Like, oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, there's Yay. an actual video of me singing "No Turning Back" with my dad when I was wow. little. Wow! Oh, that reading that hymn line there, I was like, oh, I remember that one. That was great. Such a classic. That's good. It was I, huge. I mean, "No Turning huge. Back" was a huge deal growing up. Like that was yeah. a huge song. It was. It really fit in with the Christian army mentality that I remember mm-hmm. hearing a lot about around the same time. Just the idea that all in, we're not going back, we're not looking back, we're not going to be pillars of salt like Lot's wife, we're keeping our eyes forward. It was really of its time. Um, But I was struck by this quote because I think a lot of people hear stories like ours and they're like, well, why did you subject yourself to it? Or why did there's a million reasons for that family pressure, not knowing any better, not being exposed to the world. But in this case, like your place in the world was threatened by everything outside of the church. Like you were being picked on and you didn't feel like you belonged and like you fit in here. And who doesn't want that? 
And not only did I fit in there, my ch- my family practically ran my church. So, mm. uh, like I said, I my immediate family was very devout, but so was my extended family. And my entire extended family, for the most part, there was a few that weren't a part, you know, weren't living in the area at the time. But the vast majority of my extended family all lived in the same area and we all went to the same church. Yeah. So it was not just like, you know, a random church, but like it was a small church and the vast majority of people who attended was my family. So it became a very big source of support uh, for me, not only in escaping from the rejection that I received in school, but also in receiving support, love, and compassion. And I felt accepted there. Yeah. That's something I was thinking of when I read that quote is so much of your book is about self-acceptance. I'd say that's really the crux of what you learn through your experiences, right? Is the self-acceptance. And it really struck me when I read this, that the church was how you had acceptance. Mm -hmm. It's the only way that That I felt like I had acceptance. Yeah. Because I didn't feel like I had acceptance growing up in where I, where I grew up. Uh, I grew up in a really small town um, in Northwest Missouri. I don't mind sharing that. And very small town. And when I say small town, I mean 32 kids in my graduating class. All right. And we were the biggest town in the Tri-County area. So we were a metropolis uh, in comparison to the other towns. Like, for example, my cousins went to a town 30 minutes south of me. Like went, They lived in a town 30 minutes south of me and went to school there. They had nine kids in their class. Wow. So like when I say small, I mean small, like we were big in comparison. And so in my school, it really came down to athletics being the number one Mm. thing uh, for acceptance and uh, not to get too much off topic, but I actually suffered a traumatic brain injury when I was a young child at age six. So Mm -hmm. athletics became a really big obstacle for me, in which case I couldn't engage in those, those activities and couldn't engage in those sports. So the very place that I would need to go in order to receive acceptance and in order to see, receive love from my peers where I grew up, I couldn't receive. So the only place that I could find that acceptance and love was the church. Hmm. It's so interesting. And it's it's neat how it, I don't want to give too much away before we get there, but that turned too. And yes, it I did. think reading through your book and learning about your story, it's interesting how the trajectory of your life was always leading you towards self-acceptance. Mm-hmm. Because anytime you tried to seek it out somewhere else, it just wasn't long lasting. It wasn't there. No. And I kind of love that for you, but it also, it's, you know, it comes with its struggles, but I just thought that was a really interesting through line of your story. Mm -hmm. So continuing on with kind of your story, you were really committed to getting into the ministry yourself with that being your life's work. Absolutely. So when you think about it, I, since I didn't feel like I was accepted where I was going to school and I didn't feel like I had very many friends where I went to school. The church was a safe haven uh, for me so much so that I could go there and feel like I was a part of the in crowd. And I can remember uh, feeling called into the ministry at a very young age. In fact, um, I had a high school mentor all throughout growing up. Well, I shouldn't say high school mentor, he was my mentor growing up. So it was just not high school, but it was, you know, out like middle school into high school. And he was a really big support to me, but he was really, really fundamental in his belief system. So mm. fundamental in his belief system that he believed that in order to be called into the ministry, you needed a life verse, a verse that actually called you into the ministry. And I can't remember exactly what the verse was all these years later, but I had one. Like I had a verse, I had everything. Like of course. I had the whole I had the whole nine yards. It was like, nope, this verse, this is it. This has called me into the ministry. This is what I need to do. Mm-hmm. And so when I was 
in high school, I was super engaged and participatory in church events. I helped to run the um, youth ministry. I also helped run the sound system every Sunday. And it became just a part of who I was. And so when I actually graduated from high school, I actually did a year internship at a mega church because I felt called into the ministry. Interesting. And that was my first realm, like my first big step into the ministry was actually working at a mega church. Mm. And then later on, Campus Crusades for Christ, right? Oh, Campus Crusades. <laughs> I don't even know if they're called that anymore. I don't either. I don't either, but I remember them very well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 100%. They're but everywhere. I think they're they're everywhere, but I do think they're called something different nowadays. Oh, I'll have to look that up. I'm not sure. I haven't stayed in the loop very well, to be honest with you. I just, I don't care. <laughs> I understand. Yep. I, I like I get being it. on the outskirts. It feels like I found my way. <laughs> I understand. I get it. But you were really in it. You were striving for this while at the same time struggling with your sexual identity, which was in stark conflict to this career path and this passion. And Well, and I think that's partially why the ministry became such a convincing argument and calling for me. Uh, Like... I feel like it's bold to say that I went into the ministry as a way to earn God's favor, but Mm. really at my heart's desire, that's what I was doing. The idea was, is that if I could go into the ministry, maybe I would earn God's favor so much so that he would actually make me straight or make Mm. me okay in his presence. Mm. Because once I realized that I was gay and once I realized that I had these desires, it honestly felt like I was trying to fit a round peg in a square like hole. Like it just wouldn't work. And yeah. no matter how hard I tried, it just you couldn't you couldn't make it work. I talked to pastor after pastor after pastor, mentor, counselors, which by the way, I did see a few counselors that tried to make me straight. Um, oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. You know, Christian kick therapists are kind of a joke, but which, by the way, I talk about in my book, but love that it just was a very uh, in-depth process and something that really uh, pulled at my heartstrings. Hmm. You even went through a rehab that had a gay conversion component to it. Correct. Which is where this book kind of begins in some ways. Correct. So the book uh, that I am coming out with, or, or it's now available, uh, it came out on October 17th, 2023. Um, it's entitled Finally Free, A Surrender to Authenticity. And this book is my story through gay conversion therapy. So after... And I'm kind of fast forwarding to that just so you kind of understand why I'm talking on this podcast and why I'm here is because I have published a book about my story through conversion therapy. And I want people to understand the damage of this type of therapy and the damage that this does to individuals and the impact that this has. I also feel compelled to write such a book Because I want Christians to understand the impact of what their rhetoric does to this community. Because I don't think that many Christians understand what their words and what their beliefs are actually doing on the ground level. It's easy to say, oh, I just believe this and it's no big deal. But when you actually apply that to people's lives and then perpetuate that on them, um, it's an entirely different story. And that's really what my book is all about because it provides you an inside look, an inside glance into the psyche of someone who's trying to actively change their sexuality and what that does to a person. Yeah. It's lifelong damage. Yes. So many of the teachings that you and I grew up with cause 
damage that I've been working on for 13 years, longer than 13 years, and we'll be working on for 13 more, and you as well. And I don't think they understand the impact. And so I really love that that's such a big part of your mission with the book. I also really love that you talk about how you want people to see some of the mundaneness of the experience, because it Mm -hmm. may not feel that dramatic when those things are happening to you and when you're in it. And as a person who has a flair for the dramatic, I really appreciated that because sometimes big things are happening in my life, but they don't feel like it. And Mm -hmm. so you don't see them for the impact that they're having or how big they are. So I loved that you brought that in to the story and you made sure that people like got a taste of like, this is how boring it can look sometimes when something absolutely wild is happening to you. Yep. I I even included in the preface. You did. It was great. It's the best introduction. I loved it. I, I hope when people read it, they should know not to skip the introduction. The introduction sets up the entire thing so beautifully and it 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 holds a universe that you really need i think to get the most out of the book so i hope people read it yeah without the introduction you don't know the backstory the introduction provides the backstory to who i am as a person and why i decided to pursue conversion therapy without that introduction you will not understand the steps that took place that led me down this path because I lay it all out. It's all out in, uh, it's all out in black and white. Like I, there's nothing that I hold back on this. No. And you do it so succinctly, which I think gives it an even stronger impact. I really just, I appreciated so much about it. I'm about that. Something that struck me in reading your introduction and several of your interviews, and then my next favorite part, which is your epilogue, um, was the family relationships portion of your story. Because I think Mm -hmm. that is something that many people who leave their faith as they know it, whether that's to discover a new version of it or leave it all together, whatever that looks like, that's still a struggle. Yes. Those family relationships, because the religion is so intertwined in the family relationships and how the family is structured and how the family functions or dysfunctions as it were. So when, when somebody veers off the path, right, it just undoes the whole thing. Everything unwinds complicated and it's painful. And I really in particular resonated with you being so, nervous to disappoint your parents mm-hmm. and having the feeling of like, I'm the one keeping everybody happy and I don't want to be the reason that people aren't happy anymore. That was definitely my role in my family. How can I keep everybody happy? And it's always to sacrifice yourself a little bit, right? Or a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just, I really resonated with that. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that and and kind of that feeling at that time in your life. Well, having felt called into the ministry at a young age, I felt like it was my responsibility to uphold Christian values in our family. And what I mean by that is I wanted to do things right. I had an innate sense within me to do things correctly. I was the type of kid that didn't drink, smoke, or have premarital sex in high school. Like I was the, I was the goody two-shoe kind of kid. Uh, because I believed in, in those types of things. And I was raised to believe that type of way. And I wanted to hold true to those values and hold true to that line of thinking. And so uh, my brother was not that way. Uh, a lot right. of my cousins were not that way, but I was. And I think that part of the reason that I was so compelled at a young age to uphold my parents' values and, uh, and really try to make everyone happy and everyone okay was because of my car wreck when I was six years old, which mm-hmm. is kind of complicated to get into, but like that car accident made me really vulnerable and it made me really tender hearted. And so I was the type of kid that would cry at, at a hat. You know what I mean? Like, in fact, I still do. Let's just be real. I cry Same. pretty easily and pretty quickly. I'm very, very sensitive. And I always was growing up. 
And so there was something within me that I just felt like other people's uh, happiness was kind of predicated on me. I, I felt like if people were upset, then that was my fault. And I don't know why. I don't know exactly where that came from. But I think it has something to do with the car accident. I think that it shifted my my brain in such a way that I just became ultra sensitive and ultra uh, compassionate in a way. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's this probably an element of you feeling like a burden, right? And then needing oh all this extra care and needing all this extra attention, extra financial stress on the family. And I'm sure the last thing you wanted to be was more of a burden. And so how can you compensate for that? Right. And it's interesting you brought that up because feeling like a burden is something that was definitely something that uh, was a theme in my childhood because mm-hmm. my brother uh, is seven years older than me. And because of my car accident, I a lot of things were just given to me and I was kind of uh, watched over very carefully because mm. of my car accident. Uh, I was in a coma for six days. And so uh, I had a lot of, you know, a, a serious trauma uh, that needed to protection. And so my parents really did everything and anything to keep me safe where they didn't do that for Brent, my brother. And so I did feel like a burden uh, because I didn't want to let anyone down. Mm. You also have that youngest child yes. situation. So some of it's just what happens. <laughs> I was the oldest, so it's probably why I'm picking up on that too. But it is just such a different dynamic between the oldest and the youngest, especially with that much of an age gap. My sister mm-hmm. is seven years younger than me, and we had totally different parents. We didn't have the same yeah. parents. They were in a different yeah. place in their life. They had more experience under their belt. They were just different. And there's there's definitely something to be said for that doubling down at that point with you and how that must have felt. And I, I understand why that would be the outcome is you wanting to make everybody happy and keep the peace. And mm-hmm. yeah. And keeping on with the story of your brother, I thought this was really fascinating. Your brother came out to your parents first. Yes. Yeah. What was that but, experience like? Well, okay. We need to clarify a little bit of this <laughs> because I kind of forced him out. Maybe but a like, little. I mean, kind of. I mean, maybe not, but yes. So you encouraged him. I kind of just nudged him. Like, mm-hmm. I just kind of pushed him out just a little bit. So... I found out that my brother was gay uh, on my way to uh, a camp, a Christian camp. I think I was a junior or senior in high school, and I was working the summer at a Christian camp for boys. In fact, it's the number one Christian camp for boys. I think it's called the Ridgecrest Camp uh, for boys. Anyways, who cares? Like, really? Who cares? But anyways, some folks like me like to go look that stuff up and go down a rabbit trail because it's wild. (laughs) It's called Ridge Ridgecrest. So, but I, uh, I, on my way to Ridgecrest in North Carolina, I stopped to see my brother and as any good brother would do, I did some snooping and in that snooping, I figured out that my brother was gay. I think you can put those pieces together. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So, At that point, it became very apparent that I was holding a secret and I had to keep the secret. And so I kept pushing Brent like, hey, you need to tell mom and dad because I don't want to have to keep the secret because uh, I tell mom and dad everything. Like mom and dad know everything about me because I'm the youngest child and I have a brain injury. So like there is no secrets. And so... Later on that summer, we went on a a vacation to the lake and I essentially just turned to my brother and was like, hey, Brent, is there anything you want to share with mom and dad? You know, Hmm. kind of gave him the wink and, uh, you know, just kind of politely nudged him, nudged him out 
And uh, he then came out to mom and dad at that point. Hmm. And in the moment, if I'm remembering correctly, they were surprisingly kind of loving. Yes. And we're always going to love you. But then the aftermath and what you saw when he was gone and you were at home was a little different. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. What what they portray and what they deal with are two different things. And exactly. like, I want to give my parents some credit here because I think that they're doing this out of love and compassion because I think at the very heart and root of all of this is my parents deeply, deeply care and love my brother and I. Of course. I, they, I don't think that they had any uh, hurtful or um, ill-natured intent within them. Uh, to hurt us or to reject us or to push us out. They very much wanted to accept who we are as people. However, it flew in the very face of their religious belief. And so while they, on the outside, put forward a front of, hey, we accept you, we love you, we care about you, what was happening behind closed doors when Brent was gone was a different story. And I got to see that firsthand being the youngest child. I would often catch my mom crying Mm -hmm. um, in different rooms of the house. Mm -hmm. I often found that my dad uh, really isolated himself and didn't want to talk to very many people. He was really concerned that, you know, if people in the community found out that my brother was gay, that that could hurt his business as a salesperson. Wow. You know, like there was small real, town. yep, small town America. There's a mm-hmm. real impact on some of these things. And so they were very concerned about some of those impacts and potential effects. And it, yeah. they really struggled with it. Yeah. There's a quote in particular I'm going to pull now because I just, yeah, go for it. This one had me thinking for a good while after I read it. And it said, Looking back, it was likely my mother wondered what she had done wrong, how she had failed my brother as a parent. She once said that after all the trouble my brother and I had experienced in high school, she had expected daughters-in-law and grandchildren as a reward. All her friends were enjoying their growing families, and she ended up with a gay son. I once heard her tell my brother that if she were in my brother's shoes, she would have never burdened her parents with this information. After hearing her say this, I knew I could never disclose my own sexual struggles until I was straight. Welcome to my journey. Yeah, it was such a a moment in your journey too, because with your brother coming out, it it could have felt like an opportunity for you to be in it together. Yeah, that's not how that works. But it was a doubling down, which is exactly what I would have done: <laughs> double down. I'm like, nope, not gonna not gonna face that. And I get it. Like nobody wants to be a disappointment to their parents. It's brutally painful. Mm-hmm. It is terrifying and it is sad. And like for people pleasers, my hand, both hands are raised. It's especially scary. Yeah. And I am still unwinding that childhood, like that child self scared part from my adult self and trying to find that balance. And it's really difficult. And reading that, it was such a great encapsulation of that feeling of -hmm. how much you don't want to disappoint these people that you love and that you know love you, but you're just at odds on this belief that is so deeply entrenched in the family and in each person in the family. And it's just ripping it all apart. From the inside out. Yeah. Literally. Literally. Yeah. And so you, you did double down at this point. Yes, I did. And I kept everything a secret. In fact, I didn't tell anyone. Anyone? No. You went through college, right? And doing Mm -hmm. Campus Crusades for Christ and trying to date women and finding great friendships in that experience. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It got super interesting. Yeah, I bet. Um, It made it really easy to follow purity rules, I bet. Oh, yeah. Super easy. Super simple. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about that stretch of time from college and kind of what you were experiencing in this doubling down phase until you decided to go to this rehab. 
So I want to be clear. When I was in college, okay, I'm going to back up a little bit and I'm going to share a little bit of some stories here because my when I first graduated from high school, I actually went to school at a uh, community college first because they offered a uh, internship through a mega church because I felt called into the ministry. So as any good Christian would do, who's doubling down in order to prove his, his favor with God, he's going to do anything and everything he can to earn God's favor. So what is he going to do? He's going to dedicate himself to a youth ministry with a mega church. Why not? So that's what I did. Little did I know the worship pastor was also secretly gay and that became Whoops. a thing. Well, when I say worship pastor, I don't mean worship pastor. I mean the worship leader of the work of the youth ministry. So the youth ministry worship leader, he was also secretly gay. And so um, as part of the youth ministry team, we used to go out and drink frequently on Friday nights um, with the, with the church that I was interning at, they had Friday night church, which was called, you know, like for the true Christians, you know, mm, for the mm-hmm. diehard Christians who go to church on Friday nights. Truly you know? dedicated. Yeah. You know, yeah. the hard to die hearts. Yeah. So we would go to church on Friday nights. And then after Friday nights, we would always go out and drink at the worship leader's house. And when you add alcohol into the mix, mm-hmm. things started to get a little, uh, you know, uh, loose. And I pretty much figured out pretty quickly that uh, this worship leader was also uh, gay. And so him and I ended up having some intimacy and that caused a lot of turmoil and a lot of stress. And then after that, I went ahead and, and went on to a, to a major university to finish out my undergrad degree. And during that undergrad degree, that is when I got involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. It's when I got involved with the mega church here in that town. And I also got involved with Christians who were involved in all these ministries. As part of my efforts in doubling down, I did date some women, but that only lasted a little bit because it was a large university. And so, you know, there was quite a few gay people around and that was a pretty big temptation. Having grown up in a very small town in Northwest Missouri, it was like, Oh, there's other people here that I could like have some fun with. And so I started doing those activities. And so in engaging with some of those people, and as I started to do that campus crusade figured it out. And so then all of the stuff started to happen. Uh, They started to enforce discipleship classes. They started to enforce mentorship. They started to enforce uh, guidance from someone who used to be gay, but was healed and by God and was now married to a female. Um, I was pushed into uh, special Bible studies. I had to go to special conferences specifically on homosexual, homosexual change and that offering hope that that you could actually change your sexuality. And I essentially went through this process throughout my entire undergrad experience. And it was this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And to be just completely honest with it, I would go, I'd hook up, I'd do the sin, and then I would repent. Do the sin, repent. Do the sin, repent. Just this constant back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, where I constantly felt guilty and I constantly felt like I wasn't good enough. In the process of doing this, I started abusing drugs and alcohol because it was the only way that I felt like I could numb the pain and survive. Yeah. And it was not healthy. It was not good for me and it was not helpful. So when I graduated from college, I essentially went to my parents and I said, you know what? I think, uh, I think I'm gay. And, uh, I also think I'm abusing substances and I need help. That's a big move. Yeah. I essentially told my parents, throw me in a room, lock the door, and throw away the key until I can come out straight. Mm. Mm. Did that answer that question? Yes, it did. All right. So not only are you coming out to your parents at this time, which is something that you've been doubling down trying not to do, now there's the drug and alcohol component, but you're coming to them with a solution. So you're still doing the, I can fix this. I can make everybody happy. I can be the person you're still in it, but now you're getting, I'm going to say this in quotes, help, right? which maybe for the drugs and alcohol, but 
not much you can do about being gay. It turns out. Yeah. That, that unfortunately I didn't have much of an, an, a choice on and changing, but I thought I could because yeah. I thought it was offered to me that God had the power to change that. Yeah. And this is where I'd like to point out, I feel like I've, I hear so many people that are still in the church saying they were never truly committed when the truth is that many of those same people would never be that committed, would never put themselves that far into it, would never really risk it to to keep doing it. And you did. I think it's hard to imagine somebody more in it than that, than saying, send me to therapy, get me the help, just opening themselves up in this raw and vulnerable way and saying, I'll do it. I'll do whatever it takes. Yeah. Because I didn't want to go to hell. And you didn't want to disappoint God, right? And right. it mattered to you. You were committed. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think that's a really important thing to note for the folks out there who I I hear sometimes saying things like, well, he was just never really, that's couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah. Um, and my book proves that that is like, if you read my book and you walk away thinking that is what happened, uh, please email me. Please call me, talk to me, because I actually want to know. Let's talk about it, because I really want to know how you came to that conclusion. Because I did anything and everything I could to try to change my sexuality and was unsuccessful. And that's what really bothers me so much about the political divide right now. Yeah, I know. But like, like, especially like on TikTok, like on all these lives, like that they go in and they talk about this stuff and people are like, yeah, homosexuality is a choice. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, excuse me. I actually, I tried to change. I did all of this stuff. Are you telling me that like I failed? Like that there's something wrong with me that I haven't done enough stuff. Please tell mm-hmm. me what else was I supposed to have done? Yep. But the truth is they would rather keep berating you and bringing you down and saying all of those things than to look even for a second inward and say, maybe I'm wrong. And yeah. that's where I, I love where your book takes this is you just learning that self-acceptance because mm-hmm. that is your weapon against all of that willful ignorance, all yeah. of that misinformation. Sometimes it's not willful. There are people that are still on their journey of getting out of the willful stage, right? But it's still ignorance. Yes. But nothing can take your self-acceptance from you. Right. Mm-hmm. They can take except external acceptance can be taken away like very quickly. <laughs> but self-acceptance, that is a phenomenal armor. And it's interesting because it does require so much vulnerability, which often doesn't feel armored up. But self-acceptance yes. is a phenomenal way to protect yourself from misinformation and hatefulness. And mm-hmm. I love that you come to that. I think it's so important. It takes a long time, everyone. So if you pick up my book, just know. You've got a long time before you get to the acceptance phase. It's yes. sprinkled, but it it's sprinkled throughout. But like it, you're, it's going to take you a hot minute before you get to like the the meat of that self acceptance. Anyways, yes. just throwing that out there. It's true, and I, I like to remind people often on this show that it took me 13 years to get to making this show. I left fundamentalism 13 years ago. That's a long time to just now start being able to say out loud and publicly, I kind of fucking hated it. <laughs> like, this isn't right. Like, I don't think this is a good thing for people. And here's why. And it's a big moment and it's okay for it to take time. And the journey is kind of amazing now that I've accepted that it's a journey. <laughs> and I, I'm glad that you make that clear and that that's part of your book is right is sharing this piece of this long journey to self-acceptance. So tell us a little bit about how the book is structured because it's kind of unique and really cool. Yeah. So it's structured in a way that's unlike most books. So the introduction is essentially my life story from the time I was born until the time I decided to go to, to conversion therapy. So like the introduction covers 22 years of my life. Then we move into day one through day 89 of my experience in this program. And each day is structured in a really unique way. There's actual excerpts from the journal itself that I wrote when I was in this program with reflections after each excerpt 
of what I think now in present day of what I think looking back as a licensed clinical social worker and therapist. I love that. Yeah. And by the way, the journal itself was 300 pages long. Oh my goodness. So you've had your work cut out for you going back through this. It's yeah. It took a long time for this to finally get published. Mm. It's, this has been a long work uh, to get done. It was not done overnight. Let's just put it that way. But what's cool is that you get to see what my mindset was when I was in the program. And then immediately you get to see what my mindset is now. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth throughout out, throughout all 89 days, which is a really cool and unique way of, of reading a book. And then the epilogue essentially covers my life after that treatment program until now. And uh, spoiler alert, I call out a few things in the epilogue, like the church. So I, I don't I don't hold back. I don't I don't hold back. I loved it. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, for those of you out there, you should be jealous. I got an advanced copy of this and I yes, got to read did. it for this episode. And so I'm just super stoked for it to come out so you can see how neat it is. It really is cool to see you going back and forth because it's all you, right? It's these versions of you separated by time and the newer one getting to reflect on the older version. It's so neat. And that's something I only do in my head, right? Is reflect back on my older selves, but you've gotten to put it onto paper in a really incredible way. And I just think it's neat to get to see where you were at when you went into the rehab. Uh Because I think, again, for the folks who are like, oh, maybe you just weren't that committed. You were so committed. And I'd like to share another excerpt. It's from your first day. Okay, It really struck me. You said, I want to feel good in my own skin. I don't want to continue being at war with who I am. Was I born gay? Can my homosexuality change? Am I truly a Christian? What factors are behind all these problems in my relationships? Am I strong enough to live a life of integrity? These are all questions that I would like answered and why I found myself in California. I started tearing up at that portion because it's just such a real raw moment of where you were and like how much you wanted to get to the bottom of this and how much you were hoping you could change. Uh-huh. You're not asking questions like that because you don't give a shit. No, I, I'm asking them because I do give a shit. You gave more shits than most people give. <laughs> like, yeah. You were in it to win it. And it just looking at it, it broke my heart in some ways, but in other ways it was just such a testament to where you were and how hard you were trying. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that people don't get to see when we watch things like Netflix specials about it and whatnot. We're always talking about the traumatic things. We're rarely talking about the people who are experiencing the traumatic things and what their mindset is and what they're actually going through because it's not sensational, like snake handling. You know what I mean? Right. Right. But what I like that your book does and what I what I try to do here on my podcast is what was the person's experience who was like having to watch the snake handling? Mm-hmm. What was the person's experience who didn't ever want to really hold the snakes and was really bad at it and didn't fit in? And like, what did that feel like? That's that's where the hurt is. Those are the people who are really seeing things for what they are. And I just it was such a great moment. And well, I'm so glad you. that you're sharing this openly. Yeah, I'm pretty vulnerable. It's There's nothing held back, that's for sure. I like that about you. I think it's great. So you leave this rehab. Yeah. And what happens? Well, I mean, I, I left the rehab believing that I could be straight. Part of that was because there was no way <laughs> they would let me leave unless I committed to five years of celibacy. Wow. Talk about high control. So there's there's that. Uh, I couldn't leave unless I committed to several things. And then I really believed that I, I could become straight. So much so that I went directly into my master's program in social work when I left the when I left the treatment facility that I dedicated my capstone research project on can homosexuality be changed. Amazing. Yeah. So 
I was trying then to use research as a way of like proving that this could actually work. Obviously, no. It and it not, doesn't. Uh, clearly. <laughs> but I was trying to prove it with research because I had been taught this. And there was a lot of flack that I got from from academic institutions. I bet. For the type of research that I was trying to do. But yeah. I, I felt called to do it because the church had, had instilled this within me. And so when I when I left the facility, it it literally took me years before I actually reached a point of acceptance. It's not like I left and I was like, oh, um, I, I'm just accepting myself and this was all a waste of time. Oh no, I didn't. That's not how this worked. I actually continued to fight the fight and do what I could, but clearly that was not going to work. So I went ahead and got my master's in social work. And then started taking several jobs and doing what I could. But I actually was not successful in working because I was still very miserable and Mm. felt like I was not doing well. And in fact, I think I started drinking again because it just was like nothing nothing has changed. Mm. So the treatment facility didn't really make that big of a difference. I mean, I think it helped me a little bit with the substance use treatment. But like overall, like... I was still engaging in some of those behaviors because the, the the same reasons for which I was drinking in the first place still remain. And so it took me years before I finally reached a point of self-acceptance and feeling okay in my own skin. And really the, the linchpin behind all of that was I came to the conclusion that my God, if he does exist, would far rather I live a life where I am happy than no longer be here. Because I started to fear that if I continued down this path, it was going to lead me to a place of suicidal ideation. Like Mm -hmm. I I couldn't see any other path that wasn't going to lead me down that way. Mm -hmm. And so I quickly learned and realized that the only way for me to be okay, the only way for me to be okay within my own skin, and really the only way for me to live life happily was to accept myself. And the only way that I could do that was to separate myself from the church. Hmm. Separate yourself from the thing that was really coming at you the hardest. Correct. Yeah. I I struggle to think of any group that comes after homosexuality harder than the church and then religion in general. Certainly, yeah. there are other religions that also contribute to the problem. But in America, you're primarily looking at Christianity. Yep. That's where 100%. all of the laws start. It's where all the rules start. It's where all of the vitriol starts. And so I'm glad that you made that decision for yourself. And if you don't mind, I'll share one last quote. I won't give your entire book away. But Go this quote really struck me because you're talking about surrender. Uh and what you needed to surrender to and how you'd been surrendering to all these other external things. And you said the surrender required was the surrender to acceptance, acceptance that I am gay and it's okay, except being gay is okay with my God and that he loves and accepts me exactly for who I am. There was no fault in my design. My struggle did not originate with the lack of surrender to God. It was a lack of surrender to authenticity. And since I surrendered to authenticity, I am finally free. My once fractured self is now whole again. Bingo. That's it. That's Mm -hmm. it. That encapsulates what so many of us who leave the church deal with. Can we Mm -hmm. accept ourselves outside of this thing that told us we had to conform to be accepted? Can we do it? Mm -hmm. And for those of us who can and who try and who do, Life gets a whole lot better, gets a whole lot better. And I'm so glad that's your story. And I wonder if you could take a minute to speak to the ongoing work of self-acceptance, because the moment is the beginning. Correct. It never (laughs) ends. It never ends. (laughs) It really never does. And it's a constant battle. So I don't want to like portray myself as some person who is like, Oh, I've 100% accepted myself. No, no. There are still days where I question all of this. Mm. I still have days where I backtrack, but I continue to fight 
And that's really what I want to encourage. Because this is the thing, is that my lack of acceptance of myself has nothing to do at the end of the day with God. It has everything to do with the opinions and thoughts of Christians and what they Mm. are perpetuating on me and what they're perpetuating on society. It has to do with other people. It doesn't have to deal with God. And that has been one of my biggest revelations as I move forward through this acceptance journey um, is how human beings can take something and twist it for their own gain. Mm. And if we allow that to impact us, if we allow that to seep into our hearts and we allow that to eat at us, it will destroy us. So it's a constant battle. It's a constant fight. And I want to encourage you, please, if there's anything you take from this interview, don't give up. Keep fighting. Keep going. You are worth it. That is exactly right. Now that's a sermon I can attend. <laughs> there Thank it you is. for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. It's super important and Again, I'm just really grateful you're putting this work out in the world. And thank you for your vulnerability and for reaching out. I'm so glad that we got to connect. And I feel really privileged to have gotten to read a little bit of this before it hits the shelves. And well, I feel honored to finally meet you. I, I oh feel like goodness. this is a big deal. Like I'm honored. <laughs> so I appreciate you. Tell to all your friends, I'm a huge deal. Um, I, I will. Um, <laughs> I will. That's so funny to me because I just think of myself as like, oh, I'm just chilling here in Greenville doing my thing. That's really sweet. Um, I wonder, tell our listeners how they can find your book and when they can find your book because they definitely need to have a copy. Yeah. So you can find my book on Amazon. Uh, It releases on October 17th, 2023. Um, It will be available via Amazon. You can find out more information about the book and more information about me as a professional at my website, which is sethshowalter.com. Great. And I will have that linked in the show notes along with some resources and recommendations for you. So you'll be able to find those very easily. And Seth, I just want to say thank you again for this incredible conversation. I have a hate love with the next part of my show because it means the conversation is ending and I'm usually not ever ready for that. But I love these questions and I'm super excited to hear your answers. Mm -hmm. So first question is, what is something you see clearly now that you didn't see before when you were the most immersed in your religion? So to answer this question, I first need to establish I am a validation junkie. All right. I live for validation and affirmation. And it's, it's threaded all throughout my book, but religion has a way at feeding at that validation and that affirmation so much so that it becomes addictive And that's literally what kept me coming back to the throne. It was like, I need, I need this validation. I need this affirmation to know that I am okay and that, and that everything is going to be all right. And now that I have stepped back and that I've stepped away a little bit and can see more clearly, I can see just how religion uses validation and affirmation in a manipulative, controlling way that literally keeps people frozen and trapped. So true. I love the way you put that because you do become just kind of trapped in your own mind. Mm -hmm. And our last question and my favorite one is what have been some of your greatest moments of joy in rebuilding your life post-faithfulness? So post-faithfulness, I have become a therapist So when I think about greatest moments of joy, it's really being able to help other people. And and more specifically, it's about helping people through religious trauma. And that's really what I want my book to be all about. So when you ask me, like, what's the greatest moment of joy? It's writing this book in order to help other people. So Mm. it's it's twofold. Uh, It's writing the book so that I can help other people 
and using my clinical skills to do it. I love that. I've had more than one person come to me and say, wouldn't you be happier if you just let go of the past? And I think your statement is important to the answer to that question. Helping other people with the things that you experienced and have learned from is part of letting go of the past. It's Mm -hmm. letting go of the hold that the past has on you and being honest about it and using that experience to bring others into healing and into a place of self-acceptance. And what could be more incredible than that? Nothing. Nothing. It's the best feeling in the world. Agreed. Thank you again, Seth. This has been a phenomenal conversation and I am so excited for your book to hit the shelves. And thank you just again for being here. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode and being on this journey with me. You can find resources and links in the show notes. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, and review, and follow along on social media to help us grow. Now I See is independently funded by me. If you'd like to help support the show, you can donate directly or purchase a merch item on the website. Music for this episode was made by Alana Sabatini, a former faithful and talented musician. And finally, this podcast is made possible by the incredible team at Softer Sounds, a feminist podcast studio for entrepreneurs and creatives, providing technical skill with tender support.